Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You'll open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. Our text this morning is the entire second chapter of Zechariah, which is the third of the eight visions that we'll be studying. If you look at the chart in the front of your order of worship, you can chart our progress. You'll see the visions we've already covered are in gray. The one that we're focusing on this morning is in black. The rest that are untouched or in white, but that will change as the weeks progress and you'll have an increasing sense of accomplishment and hopefully an increasing sense of comprehension to go along with that. So we're taking a look at Zechariah. Let's read our text, this third vision, starting in Zechariah 2, chapter 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold. I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Father, you have roused yourself and you are at work in the world and we pray that you would show us your hand in history, that you would reveal to us the measuring line that demarcates your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's always struck me that the very first thing God tells us about himself is that he's creative. Not power. He doesn't start with power. He doesn't start with, with, with might. In the beginning, God created, and it's the very first thing he wants you to know. The God who made us is a maker. God is a builder. But when you make things and when you build things, you also need to have the right measurements. You've got to take some measurements before you begin. 
If you think about it, if your clothes were made to the wrong measurements, they wouldn't fit. If the house that you live in was made to the wrong measurements, it might fall down. So if you're going to make things and if you're going to build things, it's important that you get the measurements right. But the problem is measurements change. Measurements change. Wouldn't it have been great if when you were born, your parents had gone out and they'd bought you the most wonderful, expensive pair of shoes for you to wear for the rest of your life? There'd just be one problem. You wouldn't be wearing them today because your measurements have changed. Your feet have gotten larger, in some cases, surprisingly large. You can't wear what you could once wear because your measurements changed. Families, the measurements change. A family of two might live happily in a place that a family that is of six or eight quickly outgrows, and you have to find somewhere else to live. There's an old saying, goes back to the uh, Greek philosopher Protagoras, that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. And if you think about that phrase, you might think, well, I can see the point. After all, we still measure thing in things in feet. How many feet long is it? And, and feet are a very human form of measurement, right? About 12 inches or so, depending on the size of your feet. But Protagoras was actually wrong in the big picture. Man isn't the measure of all things. It's true that we measure things according to our own standard, that we have our own perception of things, and that we tend to look at things according to our own measurements, unless we have a powerful reason to do otherwise. We assume that the way we see things is the right way, unless we have a strong motivation to see things differently, which is why we measure God's promises according to our own expectations. We measure what God is doing according to our own experience. There's something inevitable about that. Calvin, in the very first sentence of Calvin's Institutes, acknowledges that knowledge of God and knowledge of self are kind of inextricable. It's hard to pull those things apart. And yet, occasionally, God gives us strong inducement to see things otherwise. God sometimes shows us that our measuring stick isn't large enough to understand what is going on. And Zechariah's vision of the measuring line is one of those instances. In this vision, God gives us powerful reasons not to trust our own instinct for the measurement of things, but instead to measure according to his vision and not ours. God's measurement of the new Jerusalem, which is what we see happening here in Zechariah 2, God's measurements are a lot bigger than you realize. When we think about the new Jerusalem, when we think about the people of God, it turns out God has a much larger idea of what that means than we do. At the opening of the vision in the first few lines where we see this man with the measuring line, there are two little cues in the text that you want to pay attention to at the beginning. They come in the form of, of a word, behold. Right? Behold. You see this in line one. I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold. And then a few lines down, this is verse number three. It begins, and behold. So one vision, but it has two parts to it. There are two episodes in this vision. In the first, 
Zechariah sees the man with the measuring line. And in the second, an angel comes and speaks to the angel who speaks to him and gives him instructions about what he ought to do. So the man with the measuring line in the first vision is interesting. If you think about the, the, the provenance of this measuring line. So we saw in the first vision last week, God expresses his anger towards the nations. And then in the second vision, there's an immediate follow-up, right? Where the four craftsmen are sent out as instruments of that anger or that wrath. So those craftsmen go, and as we said, they, they bring about the nation's downfall, but they do it by building. They're craftsmen. They're building up the destruction of the nations. If you go back to the first vision, though, you also see these words in chapter 1, verse 16. My house shall be built in Jerusalem, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So we've seen God has this intention to stretch out a line over Jerusalem, and now in the third vision, it's happening. We see someone actually doing the thing that God said that he was going to do. There's a promise, and then it's followed up by the appearance of a man with a measuring line. That signifies another kind of building. So the craftsmen go, and they build against the nations. But now this guy comes out with the measuring line, and that shows a building project. It's about to be undertaken, but this building project isn't building destruction. This project is building presence. Presence. Not presence with a T at the end, but presence like the presence of God in the place. Because what they're building is God's dwelling place among the people. So the image of a measuring line is one that occurs throughout prophecy. You see this idea coming up time and time again. Some of the passages where this happens are in your order of worship, and some are not. The very famous mention of a measuring line in the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah prophesies about the new covenant that is coming, he links that to this idea of a measuring line building the new Jerusalem. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther, straight to the hill Gareb, and shall then turn to Goa. That's in Jeremiah 31, in verses 38-39, just a little bit later in the prophecy of the New Covenant. So you see the New Covenant and the New Jerusalem are tied together. In Ezekiel, you've got the beginning in your order of worship of Ezekiel chapter 40. In Ezekiel chapter 40, we get another measuring line that's going to go out. And the fascinating thing about this, that work of measurement in Ezekiel will continue chapter after chapter after chapter, all the way from chapter 40 to chapter 48 at the end. And you get an extremely elaborate uh, mathematical rendition of the layout of the new Jerusalem and the new temple that is to come. Ezekiel has what we would think of as almost like a 3D sort of virtual walkthrough of the city that is to come. Now, as you read through that, I promise you, if you start in in chapter 40 and and work your way through to 48, at a certain point, your eyes will glaze over and your mind will sort of turn to mush and you will no longer be taking in all the details and and, and you won't understand, like, why does it matter how many cubits? Like, what do I need to know this information for? But then there comes this this incredible line right at the end, and it concludes 
the prophecy of Ezekiel. As it has laid out this city, the very last line is this in Ezekiel 48:35, And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. So all this elaborate vision and all this seemingly uh, unnecessary detail, all of it to establish the idea that here God will dwell with us, with his people. In the book of Revelation, you get this as well. In the book of Revelation chapter 11, John is given a, a measuring line to measure, and he's instructed in how to measure, what to measure and what not to measure, because some of the things measured will be sort of within the scope of salvation and others will be left to judgment. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, it happens again where there's a measuring rod of gold that is laying out the measurements of New Jerusalem and sort of a recapitulation of what Ezekiel has already done. Now, the measuring line in Scripture isn't just taking measurements. It's drawing lines. It's articulating the scope of what God is doing. It registers a divine verdict, as one commentator says. What he measures is thereby set apart unto God and under his protection. What he leaves unmeasured is thereby rejected and abandoned to profanation and desolation. I mentioned Meredith Klein's work, Glory in Our Midst, earlier. One of the the subtle interpretations that that his book provides really well comes here when he looks at who's who in this story. Now, remember, I I noted before, with a more literal translation, it's sometimes harder to pick up on these nuances because the Hebrew can be a little cryptic. But there are two episodes in the vision. In one, there's a man with a measuring line, and Zechariah speaks back and forth with him. And in the second, an angel comes and instructs the angel who instructs Zechariah about what to prophesy. The question is, who are these people? Klein argues that the measuring lines in Scripture either belong to Christ or are given out by Christ to people that he has delegated. And that the angel who gives the word to the angel, this this word that's given is, is a word of God, a word of Christ. He identifies the man with the measuring line and the angel who speaks with the angel of Yahweh, who we saw earlier with a pre-incarnate vision of Christ himself, the rider on the red horse in vision number one. And the question is, what are Christ's instructions to the builders? What does he actually say? And what he says is the new Jerusalem, it's going to be huge. As you're measuring out the parameters, as you're deciding where the walls should go, how contained should the city be, well, the thing is, it's not going to have walls because it's going to have so many people inside and so much livestock inside that that it would be pointless to try to rein it in in that way because so much has to fit into the city of God. Now, when we think about how big a city the new Jerusalem should be, how many people are there ultimately who will be saved. You start thinking of like these frozen chosen caricatures. You think about words like remnant and say, well, remnant sounds pretty small. So maybe it's going to be a handful in the overall scheme of things. But here, I think God pushes back against those assumptions. When, when you're thinking, well, I guess what God is doing must be small. I guess it must be sort of like, I don't know, like, like just, just, just saving what you can out of the, the, the overall mass of destruction. 
the way God talks about it doesn't make it sound that way. The way God talks about this vessel of salvation is it is so large that it can't be hemmed in, which ought to fill us with a sense of hope. God is plainly declaring that his people will be a vast multitude. It is meant to explode all our preconceptions. The new Jerusalem won't have walls, but it won't need walls because it has God's presence there. It has God as a wall of fire protecting it. It doesn't need anything else. Now, clearly, that prophecy cannot refer to the city that they're now rebuilding. Because, as you know, Nehemiah famously, he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, the city of Jerusalem is a walled city, more or less. So this is not the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, the, the city without walls, is the eschatological city. It's the city that is to come. It's the city that, that Christ is building now in his people, and when he comes again, will bring to fullness. In Scripture, the idea of a city without walls is a metaphor for defenselessness. If you look in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 28, says that that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The idea is, if your city isn't surrounded by walls, then you can't resist the world around you. You have no control over the, the direction or the destiny of life within the city. So ordinarily, you don't want to be a city without walls. But here, God is promising that the new Jerusalem will be a city without walls, not because it's defenseless, but because it's inhabited by God with his people, and there is no greater protection than that. Ezekiel says the name of this city will be the Lord is there, which translates in our text, glory in her midst, that God will dwell among his people and we will dwell in safety and security. Or as is declared in Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. There's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 2, but like several of these visions, it's followed up with what we might call an oracle, a kerygma, an evangel, a sort of sermon. And this is the text that comes afterwards, the up-up text, the encouragement to the people. Klein would say these words too you should read as coming from Christ, as Christ speaking of his mission. And what this mission reveals is the new Jerusalem not only is vast, but God intends to fill it. It's going to be a big city, but God intends to pack it. And so he gives these calls, these calls to people and and to various kinds of people, right? He gives a call, first of all, to the people of God who are still in Babylon. There's a call to the people of God who haven't returned. The exiles who are not in Jerusalem, building Jerusalem, but are still living lives in Babylon. And he says to them, flee the land of the north. Like, get up and flee. Run. Come back here. Act with a sense of urgency because the time is now. He recognizes that his people have not come to him, but he doesn't want them to remain in Babylon because judgment is coming to Babylon. Instead, he says, escape to Zion. There's a gospel call for you right there. Escape to Zion. Leave Babylon behind and escape to Zion. There's also a call to the people who are already here. 
those who've already gathered in Jerusalem. And that's a call to joy. He says, sing and rejoice. That call to joy reminds me of Paul's call to joy in Philippians. When he says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4.4. The reason I say it reminds me of this is because there's a similar kind of tension to it because you're being told to sing and rejoice, even though the, the circumstances of the outside world aren't really the kind that produce those sorts of emotions. Paul is saying to rejoice in the midst of suffering. He's not saying wait until Jesus comes again and all this ends and then rejoice. He's saying rejoice now. And then he repeats it again. Again, I say rejoice here, sing and rejoice, not because of what is happening, but because of what is to come. The reason we should sing and rejoice is behold, I come. I'm coming. The Lord is coming to make a home with us. And that's why the spirit within the church now and forever, the temple that God is building, the spirit should always be a spirit of joy. Like the feeling we have in the church, whatever the circumstances are, whatever the setbacks, whatever the suffering, the spirit that we have to lean into is the spirit of joy, because that's what God's people have been called to do. The gospel itself is a call to all creation to sing and rejoice, to rejoice for the sake of what is to come. There's another call here, not just a call to God's people who have not yet left Babylon, not just to those who are in this ruin of Jerusalem, but also a call to those who are not his people. Because there's a word of judgment that's woven through the passage that we've read. Judgment is coming. God says, I will shake my hand over them and they will be plundered. I'll shake my hand over them and they will be plundered. That's what's going to happen to Babylon. And yet, and yet, there is a call to those who are not yet God's people, right? We see here, this is in verse 11, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord, to Yahweh in that day, and shall be my people. So the nations who are the focus of judgment, the nations that God is angry at, the nations that God has sent craftsmen to undermine, some of those nations will be his people. And that's why the city has to be so large because God is not only going to pack it full of his chosen people of Israel, of of ethnic Israel, but he intends to pack it full of his chosen people from the nations of the Gentiles as well. He's going to pack the city as many nations in that day will join themselves to the Lord and they shall be my people. So the call to those who are not God's people is, We've left room for you here. There is room in the city for you as well. And then in verse 13, this wonderful injunction, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You know what that is? You think about what that is liturgically, like a line like verse 13, where would we use that? In a church service, where would we say words like that? You know, a good place to use words like that would be in a call to worship, because that's what that is. This call to silence isn't like a 
It's not like the maternal call to silence when the kids are acting up, right? This isn't like, ah, the kids are crazy. They're screaming, be silent, shut up. You're not supposed to say that, but sometimes it happens, right? That's not the kind of call to silence that this is. Be silent, all flesh before the Lord. This is a call to worship, to be in awe of his presence, like to bow down before him, to to be quiet and listen and watch and see what it is he's going to do because he's going to do something. Because it says he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. So if you thought we're down here and God is up there and God can't see what we're doing and, and, and can't do anything about it, this is saying, oh, wait a second. No, God is on the move. God has left the building. God is coming. So be silent before him. This is a call to worship, and it's an instruction to all humanity. So when you think about this city without walls, and you think about this measuring line that that seems to throw out this, this limitless plan that God possesses, there's a question you ought to ask yourself, which is when the shaking starts, where do you want to be living? God says, I'm going to shake my hand and they're going to become plunder. God says, flee from Babylon and escape to Zion. When that happens, if he's roused himself from his holy dwelling and is coming to dwell with us, when the shaking starts, where do you want to be? Do you want to be in a city whose walls are going to crumble? The city of Babylon throughout scripture is a symbol for the city of man. The, the city in opposition to God's work and God's people. Even once Babylon itself had fallen and it was no longer significant, certainly by the time they returned from the exile, the Persians have already conquered Babylon, and yet prophetically, Babylon remains this image. Even when the Romans ruled everything, it's still Babylon that stands as the example of the city which calls to us, the city that seems so strong, but it turns out that its walls are just a sham structure, that that city has been eaten from within and is destined to topple. It looks strong, but it's going to fall. The gospel call is to flee that place, to get out of there. Don't linger in Babylon, instead escape to Zion. Because when the shaking starts, you want to be in the city so great that walls cannot contain it. The city that is so secure that God himself is a wall of fire around it. The new Jerusalem built with God's power, a city so strong it needs no defense apart from God's presence. It needs no sun to warm it because it has the warmth of God's face. When the world shakes, you want to be living in the city that cannot be shaken. You want to be living in Zion. So if you are one of God's people who's still living in Babylon, by which I mean still have your hopes planted in the soil of this world, if you're still living for what this world can do for you and what you can gain in it, if you're still measuring what is valuable according to the measuring line of this world, then you need to get out and come home. You need to get out and come home. You need to flee to Zion. You need to build Jerusalem, not Babylon. Put your hope here, not there. 
And if you're one of God's people living in the ruin of today's Jerusalem, you fled Babylon, you got here, and then you looked around and were like, um, well, okay, is this it? Then the charge to you is to sing and rejoice. To sing and rejoice, even though it's not perfect, even though it's far from perfect, even though what God intends to do here is, is only visible in kind of a patchwork. Right? You're surrounded by saints who seem like anything, but how can this be the city that God is building? And yet, in the midst of that, he calls to us and he says to sing and to rejoice. In other words, don't give in to despair. Don't give in to discouragement. Don't tell yourself, I guess the spirit lacks power. I guess there's nothing God can do to break the power of sin in our lives. Don't surrender to that. Instead, live as if you're meant to inherit. Live the way heirs do. People who know they're going to inherit a fortune don't stay up at night worried about how they're going to pay their bills because they know they're going to come into a great inheritance. We're called to live like that kind of person, a person who's not worried about what the world can do to us, but rather is trusting and is confident what God will do for us. And if you're not one of God's people yet, then come inside and dwell with us. The city is vast. There's no reason for you to stay outside. If you hear the call, then the call is for you. Now, you don't have to be like us to be one of us. You may look around at the people of God and say, I'm not sure I want to be one of those people. I don't want to have to dress like they do, talk like they do. I don't want to have to vote like they do or live like they do. I'm not saying be like us because in many ways we're not like what we should be and are not good examples of what Jesus has called us to. What I'm saying is not be like us, but be one of us. Recognize that what brings us together is a common need that we have, that all of us are subject to sin and there is only one answer for sin, and that's Jesus. So share our faith in him. And then let us all stand in awe of God. God, if you think about what it is God is doing, God is doing the thing that we pray. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask him to do this. We ask him to make it on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what he's talking about here, that he's going to make it on earth as it is in heaven. Where God dwells in holiness, he's going to come down and make this a place of holiness. And we're human beings. God made us to worship him. He made us to delight in his presence. And that's what he calls us to do. Now, if God's way of measuring is beyond our calculation, it's for good reason. If it's impossible to put walls around this city, there's a reason for that. What kind of a limit can you put on grace? What kind of wall can you build to stop the flow of grace? Well, the measure of this city has to be so vast because it's meant to contain the work of Christ. It's meant to contain the work of Christ. And because Jesus is big, his city has to be big too. It just has to be that way. And that's why Jesus, the fully divine, fully human son of man, is the measure of all things. Man is not the measure of all things. but The son of man is. Jesus Christ and his work and his love is the measure of everything that matters and needs to be the measure of all of our hopes. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.